This episode of Flash Forward is supported by a great new event space in New York called Caveat. Caveat is a downtown venue that puts on incredible, smart events, redefining the boundary between intellect and entertainment. Caveat puts on a lot of events that I think Flash Forward fans would be interested in. Like they have this recurring show called Convergence, which brings together experts from vastly different fields to tackle important questions about the near future. The one I saw was about how machine learning will affect labor laws. And they have a show coming up about how artificial wombs will affect social structures. The next Convergence live show is on October 12th at Caveat in the Lower East Side in New York City. Head to caveat.nyc for that and many, many other shows, including Flash Forward Live later this fall. Go to caveat.nyc for more information, like dates and how to get tickets, and I will be sure to update you on the podcast as they get closer. Okay, let's go to the future. Hello, and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world we just heard might really go down. Before we start today's episode, I have a quick announcement for you. Flash Forward is going back to bi-weekly, or bi-monthly? Every other week. It's every other week. I never know the right way to say that. Anyway, the show will be twice as frequent as it has been in the past, which is the most important part of this. I am back to doing Flash Forward full time, which means that if you like the show and you want to help keep it going, now is a very, very good time to become a donor. You can learn more about how to support Flash Forward at flashforwardpod.com slash support. Okay, that's the big news. Now let's go to the future. This episode, we're going to start in the year 2144. Analyzing C11H17 and 308 511.393 mole by Fadine. Print. I'm Samuel Hopkins, and tonight on America's Most Wanted, we meet real-life pirates. No, they don't wear an eye patch or have a peg leg. Instead, they work in underground labs, making copies of drugs you need to stay alive. Sounds great, right? Well, what if I told you that nobody tests those drugs, and they could kill you? We have to help law enforcement take these pirates down. The manhunt starts now. Get on the ground. You're a toast, pirate. Chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on and... Analyzing Redolazi Cavum Bacteria, Ambori, Bacta, Print. The trial of Valerie Max, the alleged founder of the underground pharmaceutical manufacturing lab known as the Fire Swamp, began in Chicago on Tuesday. According to the prosecution, 
the fire swamp connected pirate drug manufacturers with buyers and provided everything from off-brand Viagra to chemotherapy and AIDS drugs at extremely low prices. Joining us today is Mary Keyes, a patent law professor at Harvard University. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for having me. People have been making and selling pirated drugs for decades, but this case seems to have really captured the public's attention. What makes this case special? Well, really what made it special was that it provided not just enhancement drugs, but also life-saving ones. Most sites up until this point have focused on recreational and what are called nootropic drugs, stuff that helps you focus or study better. Those drugs are really popular, of course, but they're not generally saving lives. The Fire Swamp focused on making and selling drugs like anastrozole and combivir, cancer drugs and AIDS drugs. That's what makes the site easier for the public to rally behind. Valerie Max is a mysterious person. What do we know about her? Not much, really. She's kept a very low profile. Even in the court filings, the Justice Department had a really hard time finding out very much about her. We know she has a biochemistry background. She got her PhD at Howard University. But since then, she has done an incredibly good job of living off the grid entirely. In fact, some people think that the Valerie Max with a standing trial isn't the real Valerie Max at all. What do you mean? Well, somehow there are no photos of Max to be found. No biometric data either. So there's no way for us to know if the person in custody and standing trial is who she says she is. So Valerie Max could still be out there printing pirated drugs? She could. Analyzing C11H17 and 308. 511.393 G mole C C equals O O C C C equals O O C Okay, so this is a future in which drug pirates are out there making copies of pharmaceuticals to give away or sell at really cheap prices. And this future was inspired by a book that just came out by Annalee Newitz called Autonomous. I'm a science journalist by day um, and actually by night, too. <laughs> Annalee has been on Flash Forward before, and she's written a couple of nonfiction books. But this is her first novel. Autonomous is about a lot of different things. There's pirates, there's robots, there's AI consciousness. But one of the big themes that she explores throughout the book is ownership, and specifically the connection between the ownership of AI and the ownership of things like drug patents. The reason why the two things kind of stuck together in my mind is that they both are issues around property that verge on being ethical or human rights issues. Uh, because, of course, access to medicine is a is a real human rights issue. And access to freedom is a human rights issue, too. And if, if we have an AI that is a person, you know, that is going to be uh, a huge concern. So this all got smooshed together in my head um, and wound up being a novel about a pirate and a robot. <laughs> um, and the pirate is a pharmaceutical pirate. The pirate's name is Jack. And she's breaking the law. So she's being chased down by a robot which is owned by a kind of semi-government organization that's chasing after her. And so we have two characters who are struggling with two very different aspects of property law. As a pirate, Jack spends her time on a submarine, reverse engineering drugs for people who can't afford them. I definitely recommend checking out Autonomous and reading the whole saga of Jack and Paladin, the robot. 
The book raises a ton of really cool questions and ideas about where the future of ownership might go. But for this episode of Flash Forward, we're going to focus specifically on the drug piracy. So how likely is it that we could get real-life pharmaceutical pirates like Jack? To figure that out, we have to break the question into a few pieces. First, how hard is it to take a drug that's on the market and reverse engineer it? It turns out that if the drug is patented and FDA approved, it's actually not as hard as I thought it would be. I mean, LSD is a drug and ecstasy and all those things. I mean, they're from a chemical standpoint, they're no more or less sophisticated than, you know, Lipitor or Viagra or Paxol or anything like that. This is Jason Kana, the founder and president of a small biotech company called Integrity Biosolutions. You can also mention that I spent 15 years working in in large pharma. Like, I worked for four different large pharmaceutical companies. Full disclosure, Jason and my dad have worked together before on pharmaceutical stuff. I think the day I met your dad, he cracked his bike, so he was pretty easy to spot. The the middle-aged guy wearing stretchy pants and bleeding. Yeah, that sounds about right. Anyway, Jason says that if you have a patent for a drug and you're a reasonably trained chemist, you should be able to make that drug. It really shouldn't be any different than a recipe for, like, Toll House cookies, right? If you get a recipe for cookies, you know, it gives you a list of ingredients, all of which are readily available, right? None of them are that obscure, right? You know, it doesn't have, like, you know, unicorn dust. So it's all kinds of things you can buy. And then it tells you, like, how to mix them and when to mix them and, you know, how to cook them and exactly how long to cook them. You know, you can obviously screw it up, but anybody who's you know, knows how to bake, should be able to reproduce a Toll House cookie pretty well. Those patents aren't any different. Internally, at rival pharmaceutical companies, this kind of copycat drug manufacturing is really common. They do that all the the time. I mean, when when you have allergies, there's Claritin, there's Zyrtec. I mean, there are a lot of these cases where you'll have three, four, five drugs on the market that all hit the exact same enzyme So at the biochemical level, they fundamentally do the exact same thing. There's plenty of that. I mean, there's tons of that. What these companies are doing isn't necessarily exactly reverse engineering their competitors' drugs, because that would infringe on patents, which we're going to get to in a second. But what they are doing is looking at the patent and studies that were done on the drug, which describe exactly how the drug works, and making a very similar molecule. So let's say that drug A works by targeting a specific enzyme. And the company who makes drug A publishes their studies and their patent saying, hey, this chemical targets this enzyme and it works. What their competitors can do is read that and say, okay, I know that targeting this enzyme works and I know that a chemical that looks like this works. Let me see if I can figure out a slightly different chemical that targets that same enzyme. And this is how a ton of pharmaceutical drugs are made. So pharmaceutical companies are doing this kind of thing all the time. But let's say that you don't work at a pharmaceutical company and you want to start dabbling in reverse engineering drugs on your own. How much would it cost to just build your own lab and start doing it? Probably, you know, maybe $100,000 or less. I mean, if you don't really care that it's safe and it's potent and you're not doing all the analytical work, you know, if you're just going to follow that, that instruction and hope that what you got is exactly what you think, um, it would probably be, you know, you'd have to rent the lab, which would be probably a few thousand bucks a month. And then you'd probably need about $30,000 worth of equipment, maybe. You know, it wouldn't be terribly expensive. 
And you'll also need a good cover, like maybe some fancy letterhead and official sounding name. You know, you can't just buy a lot of these chemical building blocks without, uh, you know, attracting some attention. Like, you can't just call up with your credit card and say, you know, I want a kilogram of of this. You know, they're going to want to make sure you have a lab. So for liability reasons, let me just state here for the record that neither Jason nor I are advocating that you set up your own lab and start making drugs for yourself or others. Please don't sue me. I, I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, in fact, a lot of people got very, very, have gotten very, very, very sick or killed over the years because somebody was trying to make a drug. And in the course of doing what they were doing, they got side products or, or, you know, contaminants, which ended up to be highly, highly toxic. But the point here is that for somebody with experience making drugs, you need about $100,000 and some fancy letterhead for when you call the chemical supply company. And you're kind of in business. Using the pharmaceutical patent and the studies that the companies had to do for the FDA to get the drug approved, you can basically make copycat versions. So why don't people do it more often? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of things I have. So, you know, obviously you could, you could be sued for patent infringement, assuming that there's a patent. But, you know, also you would just be generally in violation of regulations about distribution of drugs, right? I mean, that's, you know, why we, why we have the FDA. Ah, yes, laws. Pesky, pesky laws always getting in the way. You would be breaking a lot of laws. And when we come back, you're going to hear from that guy, Charles Dwan, about the ways that pharmaceutical companies keep their drugs safe from pharma pirates. But first, a word from our sponsors. As the demand for telemedicine grows, so does the need for connectivity. 5G meets that need. Qualcomm remains focused on giving doctors and patients superior, security-rich 5G connectivity. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash inventionage. This episode of Flash Forward is supported in part by Bitamucin. Bitamucin is a brand new product from Melorac, a company that brought you Cylons. I'm just kidding. That's not a real company. But if you do want to sponsor an episode of Flash Forward, let me know. You can get in touch with me by emailing rose at flashforwardpod.com. By the way, a lot of people have asked what those hidden references that I keep mentioning are at the end of the episodes. Well, you just heard one. And here is another hint for my non-ad-skipping listeners. Pay close attention to the names of the characters in our future sketches. They often mean something. Like, who are Samuel Hopkins and Mary Keys? Figuring that out could get you a fun prize. Okay, back to the future. So in the future we're considering right now, there is a rise in drug piracy. People who reverse engineer pharmaceuticals to give away or to sell for very cheap. And we've covered the fact that it's actually not as hard as you might think to actually do this kind of reverse engineering. But there's a pretty good reason why you're not always hearing about pharmaceutical pirates. And that's because there are a whole lot of enforcement mechanisms in place to keep people from making their own pharmaceuticals. First, the drug companies fiercely protect their patents. A patent is a, a government-granted right. So, you know, a person would apply to the government and ask for a patent saying, you know, I've got this new invention and I think that I should get a patent on it. And if the government gives you a patent on it, what you get out of that is the right to tell other people to stop making the same invention for a certain number of years or to pay you um, if they want to make the invention. Um, so my name is Charles Duan. I am the director of the Patent Reform Project at Public Knowledge. Um, Public Knowledge is a nonprofit organization that works on um, consumer advocacy. So patent law is very complicated and it's different all over the world. So this is by no means a comprehensive overview of patent law. 
And we're going to mostly focus on the United States for this episode, in part because that's where patent law is perhaps the most strongly enforced. So if you're going to get in trouble for violating a patent, it's probably going to be in the United States. And in the U.S., drug companies have a variety of ways of trying to extend their patents for as long as possible. Remember how we said that the patent should, in theory, be as easy to follow as a Toll House recipe? Well, in practice, that's not exactly what happens. There are a lot of, you know, well-known techniques for, you know, obscuring the way that um, the invention works in, in the description of, you know, putting in like, you know, 50 different alternatives, but not saying which one is actually the best one. Here are a hundred different possibilities um, for what the antibody could look like. We know that one of them is the best one, but we're not going to tell you which one's the best one. If you want to figure out, you got to try all hundred of them. There are other techniques, too. My favorite one that I learned about is leveraging the EPA to keep your drug prices high. I've got an albuterol inhaler for asthma, and albuterol is a drug that's been around for, I think, like 40 or 50 years. So, you know, patents only last 20 years. There's no way that there can be a patent on the drug anymore. But um, what the manufacturer of the inhalers did was they got a patent not on the drug, but on the gas compound that's used to vaporize the drug and to propel it out of the inhaler. And then they, they got a regulation that said that the original propellant that was used in, you know, the, in the inhalers from like 40 years ago was an environmental hazard, so they were no longer allowed to sell them. So as a result, the only inhalers that are available now are brand name inhalers that cost you know, $50, not because the drug is new or because there's any patent on the drug, but because they were able to get a regulation on the environmental effects of the additional components of the inhaler. But let's say that you are a true pirate, and also a chemist, and you don't care about patent law, and you are willing to sift through the hundreds of possible compounds in the patents that could work. And you have a well-resourced lab. I think the first thing that you should do is you should move to a different country. Charles isn't really joking here. Making drugs in other countries is a way that people actually do make cheap copies of pharmaceuticals. And in fact, it's not necessarily illegal to bring those drugs into the U.S. and sell them. So, you know, one of the things that people will sometimes do is they'll go to a country that doesn't have patent protection on, say, Lipitor, um, and you can purchase the drugs there, and then you can bring that back into the United States, and under the Supreme Court decision, you're perfectly allowed now to resell that drug um, however you want. There are drug companies in India, for example, that do this kind of thing and that some U.S. pharmaceutical companies would consider pirates. There's this really interesting guy in India named Yusuf Hamid who runs a drug company called Cipla. Hamid is hated by many American pharmaceutical companies because he makes cheap generic versions of drugs that those companies would like to sell for high prices, drugs that are patented. In 2000, for example, Hamid offered a generic AIDS medication for a tenth of the sales price. Drug companies call Hamid a pirate. Other people call him a Robin Hood type figure. He's kind of like Annalise's character Jack, except that he doesn't live on a submarine and he's a billionaire. I'll link to some interesting profiles of him in the show notes. Anyway, this is a lot of talk about today when this show is supposed to be about the future. So let's talk about tomorrow. One thing that Autonomous predicts is that medicine will continue to get more and more expensive. The piracy we see in the book is largely driven by an increase in the power of nefarious drug companies who jack up the prices for their drugs such that most people can't afford to buy them. Which might sound familiar, especially if you've been following the case of Martin Shkreli. 
So I actually started the book before the Martin Shkreli uh, scandal, um, but he, people like him were exactly what I was imagining, that he would become kind of the norm. We're not going to go into his case in detail. Uh, there are a lot of twists and turns, which you can read about on the Internet. But the basic gist is that Shkreli had a habit of buying up drugs that people need to live and hiking up their prices. In 2014, a company that he ran bought a drug called Theola. People who take Theola have to take 10 to 15 pills a day. Theola used to cost $1.50 per pill, but Shkreli's company increased that price to $30 a pill. In 2015, another company Shkreli ran bought a drug called Daraprim, which is used to treat patients with AIDS. His company increased the price of that drug from $13.50 to $750 per pill. Shkreli is kind of like a cartoon villain at this point, but he's exactly the kind of pharmaceutical executive that runs the entire industry in the world of autonomous. Part of this future is uh, pharmaceutical companies have become almost indistinguishable from tech companies now. They're uh, even more than they are today, they're about um, trying to make money as that's the bottom line. They're not there's no kind of pretending to uh, help people. Now, we don't have to travel to the future to find a world where healthcare is really expensive and a lot of people can't afford life saving medications. That is happening right now all over the world. And some of it is indeed fueled by big drug companies that want to make money. Look, I'm a scientist. I, I never got rich. Guys like your dad and me, you know, we worked on new things mostly because that's what we were trained to do and that was what we were passionate about. Let's say, you know, you're working and, you know, you want to succeed and you want to make some money. Well, do you really want to figure out how the human body works or whether or not this idea works? Or do you want to, like, say, well, look, I know Lipitor makes a, a colossal amount of money, so why don't I try to make my own Lipitor? You, you know, if you're making money for the company... No one is going to say, well, big deal. Yeah, you made $10 billion this year, but it was to give people erections. That guy's been trying to cure cancer for 20 years and banging his head against the wall. Who do you think the vice president of the company is going to be? So if pharmaceutical companies get more and more powerful and more and more unscrupulous, will drug piracy be the result? Probably in some form, but perhaps not in the way that Autonomous predicts. Because it really is expensive, difficult, and dangerous to try and manufacture pharmaceutical drugs in an off-the-radar lab. But there are other technologies that might make it easier. You know, there, there's kind of this interesting question of, you know, what happens if 3D printing gets to the point that people can just print their own drugs? And then, you know, instead of, you know, distributing the drugs themselves, you just distribute, like, the file that would tell people how to make them, but they could just make them at home. In order to be able to 3D print drugs, you would still have to get over some of the hurdles we talked about, like having the right chemicals on hand. But you wouldn't necessarily have to do all of the reverse engineering yourself. Um, and that's actually raising all sorts of really interesting questions about patent law, because patent law has just never dealt with the possibility that somebody could you know, send not the actual invention, but just instructions by which people could automatically make things. Once again, I am not endorsing this idea. Please don't sue me. It is very dangerous to do this. You know, there, there's a real public safety concern with people, you know, printing out unsafe things. On the other hand, generally, it's been the view that if you do something privately in your own home, like, you know, the federal government shouldn't be, like, coming to your door and complaining about your own private activities. On the flip side, some companies would really love to just have endless patents. In fact, infinite patent terms is a thing that has been proposed. We don't grant patents just because we want to make inventors rich. 
The reason that the United States grants patents is that it thinks by granting these sorts of exclusive rights to people for a short amount of time, they'll ultimately encourage people to invent things, and more importantly, to tell the world how their inventions work. And if you grant infinite patents, what's the point of telling people how your invention works if no one's ever going to be able to use it in the future. The reason we grant patents is to ultimately allow people to use the invention for free in exchange for a small upfront payment. So it doesn't make any sense for that upfront payment to go on forever. If drug patents do become infinite, well, then you can probably bet on more patent-busting pirates because drugs would simply never go generic, which means they would forever be locked up in the hands of the pharmaceutical industry who could then charge however much they want for them. Forever. At which point you would get to ask yourself, chemists of the world, is it time finally to buy a submarine and become a pirate? Part of the book is about how do you choose in a situation where you know there's incredible injustice going on, um, what kind of subversion do you choose to engage in? And Jack chooses a very radical path. She chooses to go completely outside the law which means that she, you know, certain kinds of things um, are no longer ever going to be accessible to her. Like she's never going to be able to have a normal life because she's constantly got to be vigilant uh, about who knows what she's doing and she has to constantly cover her tracks. Uh, On the other hand, she's actually able to get free drugs to people who need it. This is a question that I think about all the time when it comes to the future. There are people like Charles who are protecting consumers by working from the inside. And then there are people who think that that's simply never going to get us to a better future. And some days they both seem right. So how do you pick? I mean, as someone who um, started my career as a writer being really politically radical and thinking that I was going to totally change the world and like and peacefully dismantle capitalism just by writing articles um, about it that would just persuade everyone, um, you know, and having to realize like, oh, it's a little more complicated than that. So, I, And I think that these characters are having to go through different stages of mourning that a lot of activists go through where you realize like, oh, um, yeah, I might not be able to change this thing in my lifetime. So the choice is yours, my friend, to pirate or not to pirate. That is the question. That's all for this episode. For more information about any of the stuff we talked about, head to flashforwardpod.com where you can find more links. Those links are also in the show notes. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evelyn. The intro music is by Asura and the outro music is by Hasselonia. Our future voices this week were provided by Brent Rose, who played Samuel Hopkins, Stephen Grenade, who played our news anchor, and Tamara Krinsky, who played Mary Keys. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in the episode, email me there too. If you are right, I will send you something cool. If you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that too. Go to flashforwardpod.com support to learn about all of the ways that you can donate to the show. But if that's not in the cards for you, you can go to iTunes, leave us a nice review, or just tell a friend about the show. That actually helps. The more listeners I have, the better this goes. That's all for this future. Come back next time, and we'll travel to a new one. In just two weeks. So soon. Okay, 